All right. Well, we are going to go ahead and jump in for this evening. Uh, I don't think Billy... Chrissy, you're in here. I don't think Billy's in here. I don't think we could drag him in here right now, but can we, can we just thank them for all the work they put in for the meal tonight? What time did everything get started here today? Three o'clock? Well, thank y'all so much for all the work that y'all put in. And uh, that, if you haven't seen the grill that Billy is using right now, you need to go out and study it because it, it, it may be in the Guinness Book of World Records. I'm not really sure how that thing uh, works. They welded it into the frame of the uh, trailer. So it's, it's an amazing thing. It's, there's only one of those in the world, and it's right there. And uh, I'm not sure the world could handle two of those. That's an amazing thing. Uh, well, we are, we're glad that you're here. We're going to jump into the last of the seven churches, and then we will be, Lord willing, next two weeks, we'll be uh, dealing with Revelation 4 and 5, but that's not the seven churches specifically. So uh, we will be moving on from the seven churches today. Uh, Jared, could you pray for us, and then uh, we will uh, we'll quickly review the churches up till now, and then we'll jump into uh, the, the church this week. Laodicea. Yes, sir. Father, we uh, come before you and we're so thankful for uh, the meal that we were able to have, the way you have taken care of us uh, physically. Um, Lord, you have been so gracious. Uh, the overflow of your grace, you've given us one blessing after another. Um, and we're thankful, but uh, I imagine that doesn't compare with our thankfulness for what you've done for us spiritually, that while we were yet sinners, that the Lord Jesus would... Um, give his life, that you would send your son, um, that now um, you have given us an imputed righteousness uh, into our account, uh, the great exchange, uh, as we, you took our sin and we get your righteousness. And so, Father, we're just overwhelmed with that. And, and to, today, as we look um, at this church in um, see, we ask that you would help us to discern all that we need. Lord, I pray that we would take these warnings um, into our own hearts um, about the pride that uh, they um, were just uh, infected with. Uh, and Lord, that we would count on your discipline, that we would appreciate your discipline, we would love um, your discipline as you make us more like our Lord Jesus. So we commit this uh, evening to you now. So grateful. Thank you for Billy and uh, the Dudley family for their incredible um, work and um, providing supper for us. We're so blessed, and we uh, commit our, our days and our lives to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Jerry suggested, I thought this was a good idea, that we would show just quick little summaries of the seven churches up till now, and these are plagiarized directly from Kevin Young. So these are Kevin Young summaries, and uh, they are worth, they're worth a hearing. Um, We'll just we'll walk through these real quick on the screen here. So number one, the first church, <clears throat> Ephesus, was your loveless, fundamentalist church. They were orthodox, moral, hardworking, but had lost their first love for the Lord and for others. They were doctrinally sound, but lacked true love. To them and to us, Jesus says, love. Number two, Smyrna was your persecuted 1040 window church. They were afflicted, slandered, impoverished, yet they were spiritually rich. They were vibrant but fearful. To them and to us, Jesus says, be faithful. Number three, Pergamum, was your underground college ministry church. Uh, they were faithful and passionate in witness, but they had compromised with the world. They had accommodated to the sexual immorality and idolatry of their culture. To them and to us, Jesus says, be discerning. 
Number four, Thyatira was your warm-hearted liberal church, strong in love, at least as far as they can, as far as they would define it, in faith and in service. But they undervalued doctrinal integrity and moral purity. They were loving, but seriously and sinfully overtolerant to them and to us. Jesus says, "Think." Number five, Sardis was your flashy, successful, shallow megachurch, perhaps like a church in the Bible Belt that is filled every Sunday, but with nominal Christians and hypocrites. They had a great reputation, but in reality, they were dead. To them and to us, Jesus says, "Wake up." Number six, Philadelphia was your small storefront church in a rundown part of the city. They felt weak and unimpressive, but they had kept the word of God and had not denied His name. They were a struggling yet spiritually strong church. To them and to us, Jesus says, "Press on." Number seven, tonight's church, Laodicea. Was your ritzy, influential church out in the nice part of the suburbs? They thought that they had it together. Their lives were comfortable, but they were as spiritually poor as they were materially rich. The church was filled with affluence and apathy—two things which too often go hand in hand. To them and to us, Jesus says, "Be zealous." So just, I know we've done this on the last few weeks, but just any reflections just as we think about all the churches together? Any, any takeaways again? I know we talked about this some before. Yeah, it, it seems like he, it's so interesting, isn't it, that the churches that feel like they're doing well, that's not at all the case. And for the ones that are struggling and for the ones that are being attacked from all sides, those are the ones that the Lord commends. The ones that they don't look spiffy on the outside. They're really doing well in the Lord's eyes. And those that are looking pretty snazzy on the outside, not, not so good, like we see in, in Laodicea there. So it's just that. Um, I, I think it's easy to see a church or rate a church, if you will, or whatever, kind of come up with an idea that's not really biblical pretty easily. Mm. I'm good. Okay. I'm ready to jump in. No, fair enough. Uh, just a quick word about the founding of the church uh, in Laodicea. We get one tiny, tiny glimpse. I'll just do this really quickly here. And again, you can look at the screen for the sake of time. In 1 Corinthians 16, uh, Paul says, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. So you remember this is Paul's third missionary journey. He spends two years camped out in Ephesus. Acts 19 tells us about this. Remember this? I mentioned this, I think, on our first week, maybe, but here's what it says. In Ephesus, Paul took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all, now, the orange part is important, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So when you see all the residents of Asia, that's that whole middle part of the picture there, including the churches in Revelation. So we're, there's very strong reason to believe that most of the churches in Revelation and even some of the other ones were probably founded or planted while Paul was in his two-year ministry right there in Ephesus. Okay, so that, that's, that's very likely. And, and just to get a sampling of what that looked like in one instance here, you can see here on the screen, in fact, I'll stand up again here for this. Uh, Paul was camped out in Ephesus, and 120 miles up the river, you have three cities. You have Laodicea, you have Colossae, and you have Hierapolis. So obviously, this is our city for this evening, but these three were right near each other, and Paul never visits these churches, at least not in the New Testament. He may, he may go there afterwards, but he's not there earlier on. He's, he's here for two years, but what we find out is this. In the book of Colossians, there's a guy named Epaphras. You remember Epaphras? It says, you have heard before in the word of truth the gospel, which has come to you. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved servant. 
Now, do you see what church this is? This is the Colossian church. Paul did not plant that church. Epaphras did. And this was a man who was influenced by Paul. Now, look at Colossians 2.1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, the Colossians, and for those in Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face. So Paul hasn't been there before, but look at this in Colossians 4. I love this text. Epaphras, who is one of you. So where is Epaphras originally from? He's a Colossian, right? Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness, this is Epaphras, that he has worked hard for you, the Colossians, We think he planted that church. I mean, he did. That's what Paul said in the first chapter. He's the one that brought the gospel to them. So he's worked hard for you, Colossians. And look, and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. And um, Doug Moo, who's a great New Testament commentator, uh, he argues Epaphras was probably the founder of churches in all three cities. And this verse verse makes it clear that he continued to exercise pastoral uh, oversight over those cities. So when you zoom back out here, Paul was here for two years, and Epaphras probably came from his hometown of Colossae up here for maybe work or trade. He saw Paul preaching in the hall of Tyrannus, was apparently converted there, and he went back up the river valley, and he apparently planted churches in all three cities. So where did the church at Laodicea come from? It probably came through, Paul sort of was the grandfather of the church. Paul was the spiritual father of Epaphras, who then Epaphras probably planted all three churches in these three cities, and Laodicea is the, is the, is the city that we're looking at for tonight. So that's just a little background information on where, this, where the church in Laodicea probably originated from about 30 to 40 years before the book of Revelation was written. So with that in mind, uh, Greg, can you read the text for us, verses yep. 14 to 22 of yep. Revelation 3? Will do. All right. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Greg, you want to walk through the opening here of this passage? Yeah. Um, So, verse 14, into the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Um, This is the words of the Amen. It's actually a a quote from Isaiah, and it's the only place where Amen is actually used as a name. So if you want to hold your spot there, look back to Isaiah chapter 65, just real quickly. uh, I believe it's verse 16. Oh, you do have that up. Isaiah 65, 16. 
So that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless... Oh, that's sorry, wrong one. You shall leave your... No, I was right. Okay, got mixed up. So that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth, and he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and hidden from your eyes. Now, ESV says truth, but several other translations uh, legitimately translate that the God of amen. Um, And so Jesus... Um, is taking from that, and again, the God of amen, like the, the God of, you know, this is firm, this is reliable, this is trustworthy. Um, you know, because we say amen, you're agreeing to something, and you're saying yes to it. Um, and so Jesus is, is calling himself the amen, which leads into the next uh, phrase that he says there, the faithful and true witness. Um, you think of amen, you think of something you want to give your assent to, something that's true, and that's why he says faithful and true witness. And then look at that phrase, the beginning of God's creation. Now, some people have wanted to look at that, that phrase, there, the beginning of God's creation, and they want to say, well, see, this is proving that Jesus was, was the first created being. Um, you know, I mean, again, when, when someone makes a statement like that, if you've already read the book of Revelation, you know, the book of Revelation has already been teaching clearly that Jesus is God. Okay. Um, and usually this is going to be like with, um, a Mormon or Jehovah's witness, somebody trying to argue that Jesus isn't the eternal son of God. Um, and just keep in mind, like with them, you can say, look, so are you trying to say the Bible contradicts itself? Um, because it's clearly teaching in other places, just in revelation that Jesus is God. And if he's God, that means he's not created. He didn't have a beginning. He's existed forever and ever and will always exist. Um, so one, when someone says, oh, that means he's, you know, he was the, the first created being, it's like, well, he's already kind of said he's God, which means he can't be the first created being. And we agree the scripture doesn't contradict. And so what is it that he's saying here? Um, one, one translation uh, possible from this, I can't remember who I read this in, but they said you, you could even say the beginning of God's creation, the prime source of it, like the, the one who, who creates and brings it into, the, into existence. I mean, you think John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. Um, so in the beginning um, was God. You think Colossians chapter 1 said Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That doesn't mean that He was created. It's, it's making a statement about um, his position in relation to something. And in Colossians and in other places, it's talking specifically about the new creation right. that God's bringing. And it was amazing. Um, almost all the commentators, like looking through, said when he says the beginning of God's creation, he's not talking about the original creation. He's talking about the new creation. Hmm. Um, thoughts on that? No, I, the Colossians verse, I think, is exactly right. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, which means he is the beginning of the new creation. He is the first part of the new creation. So he, he has risen as a guarantee of the future renewal of all the earth, but he, he is the first resurrected being, so he's the beginning of the new creation. I think that's the same idea here in, in, in Revelation 3, very likely. And certainly his, God's faithfulness is really contrasted with Laodicea's unfaithfulness, as we're going to see and, you know, as, he, as he goes in. Because you kind of, uh, if you've read the other churches, you're kind of waiting for the you know, for him to commend them, and it just doesn't happen. There isn't, this is the second church where there's no condom, uh, commendation to them, but just he goes immediately into the problems. Well, and that's why the contrast there with faithful and true witness is so important. Mm-hmm. It's like Laodicea should have been a witness, and as we're going to see, they're completely compromised 
um, in terms of their witness for Christ to the world. And so Jesus is faithful and true, meaning one, he, he, he hasn't compromised, obviously, but two, what he says is true and he sees truly. Um, and he's about to expose them for what they really are. So I guess we want to move into that. No, that's good. Yeah. So ver- verse 15, uh, Jesus says, as he always says, something like this, I know your works, Revelation 3.15, I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot, would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So I just want to say a word about this right here. I grew up with a certain way of thinking about this verse that probably many of you probably grew up with the same way of this being presented, which is this is the idea. Hot means you're on fire for God. Cold means you basically don't care at all about God. Like you're, you're completely spiritually cold or you're completely hot, you're zealous, and lukewarm is sort of in the middle, right? I've always, I grew up thinking that's just what it means. I just, that's why I've always heard people present it as that. But um, there's, there's a pretty massive consensus now amongst, uh, amongst scholars that I think that that's not the right way to read this. And here's, here's what we actually think it means. So uh, stick with me just for one second. If you look at the screen, this is a picture of, from uh, Hierapolis, which is the city right near uh, Laodicea. And these are some natural uh, warm water springs that just are there to this day. You can look at people, go and visit them. Maybe some of you have actually been there before, but they have these wonderful uh, sort of health invigorating sort of warm water springs that are wonderful. So warm water is a wonderful thing. Then just a few miles down the road, you have Colisee, and it has never been fully excavated. That mound of green right there is what's left of Colisee. They've never really... If one of you becomes uh, an archaeologist, please dig up Colisee. I want to see what's underneath that, that hill there. So Colisee's never been fully excavated. But do you see behind Colisee? Do you see the snow-capped mountains? As that snow melts, what does it do? It creates cold water springs that come down the, the mountains, and they have wonderful cold water right down the road at Colisee. But if you look at a map and you see Laodicea is actually in the dead center of this valley and there's no easy access to water. And so, okay, this is one of those funny English coincidences where alliteration works to remember this. Are you ready? Hierapolis, hot water. Don't you love this? Colisee, cold water. <laughs> Laodicea, lukewarm water. How could this possibly? It's amazing. So that's just a little, little coincidence, but it's easy to remember that. And here, these are some of the still existing uh, uh, water pipes, essentially, that they use to get to pipe water five miles from the south all the way up to the city of Laodicea. And they, there's, there's, there's mineral buildup inside these things. They can tell that there was high mineral levels in this water. And by the time the water got to, to the city of Laodicea, guess what? It was lukewarm and pretty disgusting. I actually read uh, one scholar quoted an old person from the time period who mentioned the disgusting taste of water in Laodicea. He's like, get away from the Laodicean water. It's disgusting. So it is actually affirmed even by non-Christian sources. But do you get the point here? Here's the point. Warm water is wonderful and useful down at at Hierapolis. It's health-giving. It's great. And guess what? Cold water is also wonderful and useful. Who doesn't want a cold glass of water with their meal after a hot day of work? So warm is great. Cold is great. You know what's not great is lukewarm. Lukewarm is good for nothing. And I think it's actually a way of Jesus saying, uh, not that I, I wish the church was either on fire or completely blaspheming Christ and cold and dead. You know, I don't, that doesn't make sense. Why would he want the church preferring it to be cold rather than lukewarm? I think he's saying the church should be good for something, not good for nothing right? Whether it's warm and useful and enjoyable or cold and useful and enjoyable and refreshing in different ways, be something beneficial to the world around you. Don't be gross, nauseating, lukewarm, mineral-filled, nasty water. Don't, don't be the good-for-nothing water in the middle. Thoughts on this analogy? Well, I mean, it's, it's like the, uh, the hose water, man. Like, you know, <laughs> growing up, we'd be playing outside and you, you're thirsty, so you go grab the hose, turn the water on. But if you, you're, 
you know anything, you know, you don't drink the stuff that comes out oh. first. It's hot. Oh. It's Wow, it's disgusting. Might even have something growing in it. You want to flush it out, and you know when the cool comes, it's like, oh yeah, there you go. You you know, you test it on your hands because that's safe. Um, it's also like, um, you know, if anybody here like Oreos or cookies to dip in their milk, and you know, you you want cold milk when you do that. Like, there's nothing worse than thinking you're gonna have some cold milk and it's like room temperature. Oh, it's disgusting. Um, so I mean, we we have ways we identify with this. Um, and, and, and Jesus is like, look, you're, you're the, you're, you're no better than the, the hose water that's comes out at the first. You're no better than like a warm glass of milk, um, which nobody wants to drink. Um, and I mean, he's, it's obviously communicating something, um, spiritually to us with, with this example. It's like, like you said, like you sh- we should be like, there should be something about us as believers that, that has an impact in a good way. I mean, you know, the world obviously doesn't love the gospel, but it's like, are, are we having any gospel truth come out of us? Are, are we communicating the gospel? Are we burdened for lost people? You know, are, do we read the Bible? Or are we just completely Christians in name only? Um, and, you know, I, I will make this, this argument a little bit later. I mean, I do believe this is a real church. It's not completely apostate yet, but it's like, this is not the place you want to be. You don't want to be like hose water as a Christian. Like you don't want that to be the description of you um, because it just, it points to the fact like you are absolutely spiritually ineffective. Like there's, there's nothing to commend. And I mean, like that's like, we think, how can you get there? But they're there. And like that, that is just a frightening image to think, would Jesus say that about me? I mean, I I pray he wouldn't, but it's like, I don't ever want to be described as lukewarm. That's, Mm -hmm. that's terrible. Yeah, you know, I listen to Kevin DeYoung right after supper because he gets pretty graphic on this Jesus wants to vomit when, when this is. And, and what it did was it set me back to say, well, he is very, very serious of what he thinks of nominal Christianity or whatever you would call that. Whatever is going on here that in name and they look good on the outside. That's the amazing. And they feel like they're doing great which is even more scary. The self-deception here is at a crazy level. And, uh, and boy, DeYoung went on and on about more than you want to hear about vomit, but how <laughs> absolutely just disgusting that is. And, you know, just a, um, and, and so was well, a good warning to us to say, this is, you know, where, where maybe a lot of us have been and, and we just don't ever want, it's a great warning. No, that's a great point. And um, let me say a word about what you're kind of mentioning a minute ago. And uh, you can test what I'm saying here with, with what you think Scripture's teaching, but this is sort of my take on some of these churches that are receiving a negative review from Jesus. I, I think the picture we're looking at is this. Jesus is giving them a warning to wake up and repent, or in this case, to, to stir themselves up to action, to, to, to be different than they are. And here's what I think is going on. Whether or not the people that make up this church, whether they're actually born again, is going to become clear very soon after they get this letter and how they respond to the letter. You see what I'm saying? Because th- 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 we've talked about how a genuine Christian can have temporary times where they struggle with sin and they can give in to sin and they can even commit willful sin, but that can't last for a long period of time. And if someone calls me on my sin when I'm, when I'm committing some sin or if Jesus directly calls me on my sin, Scripture calls me on it, here's the question, how do I react 
Because if my reaction is, I, I don't want to hear that. Don't get in my business. You got no right to judge me. Don't tell me how I should be living or how I shouldn't be living or what I should be believing. Get out of my way. The more I react like that, what, what am I starting to show? I'm starting to show that whether I'm really a Christian is starting to become more and more questionable to the point of going, I'm, I don't think this guy is a Christian, right, at a certain point. And, and however, Christians can struggle. Another classic is David's famous sin with Bathsheba. But here's the point there. When Nathan confronts David, if David would have said, okay, have Nathan killed because he just called it me out. I don't want to hear that again. Have him put to death because I'm the king. Kill Nathan, and I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. David would, we would start to go, okay, David does not look like he's born again. This, this, he's now looking like an apostate, like he, he is leaving the faith. But that's not what David did because David was truly born again. God does not let go of his sheep. And so how do the true sheep of God respond when they're called out up for real sin? They go, I can't believe I've done what I've done. It's like Peter when the rooster crows saying, I can't believe I denied my Lord. He goes out and weeps bitterly, right? It's the moment when we're called on it and we feel conviction and we, we flee and we weep bitterly and the Lord restores us. So with this, with this church here, I have no idea precisely how many people in this church are truly born again and not. But if we could be there when this letter was read, I think we would start finding out pretty soon after the letter was read what's going on with this church. Because if they responded with tears and repentance, then I'm going, this is great. It's a revival. This is phenomenal. But if they go, get, get this out of here. Like, what are you, get this letter out of our face. How dare John speak yeah. this way when, of course, it's Jesus. Uh, if they said that, then we, we, then we go, okay, Jesus is about to remove the lampstand, right? That's what he threatened Ephesus. If you guys don't repent, what am I going to do? I'm going to take away your status as a church in my eyes. I'm going to take the lampstand, which represents my presence with you. And I'm going to say, okay, if Ephesus won't repent, I'm removing my, my presence. I'm taking the lampstand out of the church, in which case they may still have the church sign out in front of their building, but Jesus is no longer calling it a church. That's when you get into terrifying territory. So the question is, how do we respond when we are called uh, on our sin? I do think it's important, too, thinking of that. Like, you know, sometimes whenever we're confronted, like, it takes us a moment to get to our senses sometimes. And so don't just, if, if somebody is doing something they shouldn't be, they're sinning and you call them on that and they, you know, at first they're going, you know, whatever, don't, don't immediately right. assume they're not born again right. because of that initial response. You know, a lot of us, we, we hear what someone says, we, we, go, we go our way, we think about it, and as we ponder it and, you know, think through what Scripture says, it's like, oh my goodness, the Holy Spirit brings conviction and we realize you know, and they call you, hey, man, you were right. I'm, I, wow, I was, you know, this, that, and the other. And, I, I, you know, please forgive me. You know, I, I'm repenting of this. You know, don't, don't immediately say, well, they didn't respond, you know, 100% quickly with, okay, you're right, I repent, I'm sorry. Like, get, give it a little bit of time. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes um, the, the way we work, um, it just it takes a little bit for us to think over stuff or, or someone to think over, over what's been said. But that's why if you rebuke somebody, Pray that God will use the truth to bring them to conviction. Like we, you don't just say it and leave it. Oh well, no. Pray earnestly. Pray earnestly for God to bring conviction if it's not immediately received. I think the thing we're getting at is repentance is inevitable for the believer. Right. Like that's because we've said this before. We need to say it again. One of the one of the the simplest ways of distinguishing between a true uh, between a, a Christian and a non-Christian is not to say, well, Christians aren't sinners anymore and non-believers are. It's the difference is Christians are repenting sinners. Meaning when we sin, God, by his grace, 
you know, has so shaped our conscience, you know, and uses the word, uses other people, uses a sermon or whatever to bring conviction so that we realize, wow, that was wrong. That was sinful. God, forgive me. Let me, if I need to go make it right with somebody, I will. Like repentance is, is inevitable for the believer. It's not something that can be delayed indefinitely, even if, you know, you, you, you rebuke somebody over something and they don't immediately repent, like keep praying because we know through our prayers and the work of the Spirit, God's going to bring them to repentance. So the prayer for someone to come to repentance is just as important as actually saying what needs to be said to that person. Um, so don't discount either one. Don't just pray and never rebuke somebody, but don't just rebuke and never pray. Do both. And I like what you're saying. We need to be open to that rebuke ourselves for sure. Mm -hmm. Let's not be self-satisfied, call them self-satisfied and self-sufficient. And that is just a bad place to be. And so, Greg, your point is really well taken. We need to be quick. Isn't it the quicker the better, right? When someone does rebuke us, let's not lash out. Let's not be defensive. Because, really, we talked about this in Saints School a little bit the other day where um, Spurgeon uh, heard one of his, the ladies in one of his, Churches said, somebody's saying all these untrue things about me. And he just said, well, just be thankful they're not saying all the true stuff about you. And I think there's really something to that. We are far worse inside. And you know this, uh, you know, our thoughts are, so when someone calls you out on something, I think it's really wise for us to say, hey, thank you. Let me repent of that. Let me you know, ask the Lord to change my heart here and really be receptive and even inviting. Wouldn't that be a great thing for, for our church to be inviting of other people to come alongside of us and to, uh, to, to rebuke us? Accountability, to, to really have a good group of accountability um, around you to help you grow because they're going to see the spots that sometimes we don't. Can I make one, one quick yeah. suggestion on that? Because this is something I have to work on because I tend to be a little defensive um, and I'm just being honest here, something I work on is instead of um, immediately like, you know, bowing up, whatever, it's like, I'm going to think about what you said. I don't like it in the moment, but I'm going to think about it. Um, and usually once I get over the initial emotion of being called out on something and I think it over a little calmly and quietly, I'm like, I, I see exactly what's being said. They're right. And then I can go deal with it. So if you struggle with being a little defensive, like on the front end, you know, instead of lashing out, say, all right, I'll think about that. I, I don't really like it, but I'm going to think about it because I need, I probably need to hear it. Give me some time and I'll get back to you. Like, you know, have some strategy like that. Um, and that, that will help. And I've said this before, but the, when we, when we get called out on something, the two sinful responses we're most likely to do, I think this is universal in the world. You see this all the time. You, you've probably done it. Uh, number one is to call out the other person's problems, right? <laughs> like, oh, I've got a problem. Well, I've got a few problems of yours that I'd like to mention right now. In fact, I've got a short list in my pocket if you want to. So that's one thing. The, the other thing, and I think this is more common in churches, is the, the, the pseudo fake, well, I'm just terrible at everything. I'm just a failure. Yeah, yeah. That, that one I think is more common in churches because it sounds humble, but it's actually not. It, it, so you, I get called on one issue that I need to think about, and I go, well, I'm just an absolutely terrible father or husband or whatever. I'm just absolutely a loser. I'm a failure. I'm awful. And the only reason you say that is so that the person says what? Well, oh, actually, no, you're, you're great. Yeah, you're the yeah, best. Yeah, you're, yeah, no, yeah. you're wonderful. We love you so. You're a fantastic father. So no, like, don't beg for compliments by doing this fake like attack on yourself. No, just the, the biblical way to handle it is like you just said. Like say, man, 
I don't, I never love to hear it, but I'm going to think about it. I'm going to pray about it. And I really want to think through what you said, because you may be right. And I need to know if you're right, because it matters. And I need to make some improvements if you are. And I think that's the way we need to, to, to deal with it. And I think, don't you think it's a real measure of our spiritual <laughs> um, growth, uh, maturity, is if we can handle a re- rebuke, when, when a brother or sister comes, that really is trying to help us to be really good about just saying, yeah, I, I thank you for, for saying that. And I like your idea there, Greg. Let's, let me think about this because you, you have to be right. There's got to be some. And they, even if they're 92% wrong, there's that 8% we ought to fix, don't you think? You know, let's take whatever it's worth and, and, and run with it and, and grow. So, but they, boy, 17 is a frightening verse, isn't it? With um, where they go here, they say, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. And then, so you say there's a three-prong idea there that's terrible. They're rich, it's not wrong to be rich, right? But they were felt like they were rich, probably physically and spiritually. I have prospered, I need nothing, um, I think I read that there was an earthquake in, in uh, AD 60, yep. is that right? right? Yep. And they had kind of not accepted the, the help that someone was willing to give them. Is that pretty accurate? They yeah, like, unlike, was it Philadelphia that we talked about, like, needed Rome's help? And Laodicea, like, they, they said, no, you're not going to help us. And all the rich people in the city rebuilt the city. So they're like, look at what we did. We didn't need any outside yeah. help. Um, so go ahead, Jerry, sorry. No, no, that's... And so, they, so they, you kind of see the Lord calling them out on their self-sufficiency. That is just a, a deep, and again, which of us isn't struggling with that? I'm thinking probably today, you know, that we feel like, oh, I kind of handle this. We're all right. And it causes a lack of prayer, a lack of dependence. It's not good for us to be independent like that. And that's what, what the Lord's calling them out on. Yeah, so let's read it one more time. Verse 17 is so important, I think. For you say... This is what they say about themselves. I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I I heard, and this made me laugh, one pastor said, imagine you're walking down the road in, you know, I'll just say Athens tonight, right? You're walking down the road and and a homeless person is coming towards you and they say they look particularly just in an awful state. That this person looks physically just wretched, poor. Uh, they may be literally nearly naked in terms of their clothes or just barely there. And this person, as they're walking towards you, says to you, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. You would be like, what is going on right now? Like, how, how could you be so off on your own self-perception? How could you be so blind to the reality? Everyone can see it. Like, everyone around you can see you're in a bad place. And yet, the person says, I'm doing great. I'm prospering. This is awesome. It reminds me of the Corinthians. Remember Paul said to the Corinthians, you guys think that you're already reigning. You guys think that you're already kings. And Paul says, oh, I wish you were truly reigning. But actually, it's not true. You've bought into this faulty self-perception. So some thoughts about this idea of how can we, how can we have such a distorted notion of our own character? Because these people have it not a little off. It is 100% backwards. How does that happen, that we have such a distorted self-image? Don't you think it's partly what we're talking about with the Total Depravity series on Sunday from the last couple of weeks is that's just our, 
we are deceived above all things. Our heart is deceptive above all things before we're a believer, and then it's still a battle after we're a believer, for sure. There's still deception going on, and we have to acknowledge it. We, and then don't you think, too, to go to the Lord, um, like in the Psalm, Psalmist, maybe 139, you know, search me say, for my, my evil thoughts, my hidden faults. We ask the Lord to search us and to reveal those things. And oftentimes, he'll do it through his word. Um, that was great. I was so encouraged by uh, Hank today talking about that. Uh, sometimes he'll do it through other people, I think. Oftentimes, he'll do it just when we least expect it. But God's faithful. He doesn't want us to live in this self-deception. He wants to reveal these things to us and then for us to humbly admit, confess, and repent, run the other way from that. Well, even for the believer, like you're saying, like, I mean, Steve Lawson had a, had a statement that has stuck with me. You know, he's like, sin will make you stupid. And he's, he's absolutely right. Mm-hmm. And even for the Christian, like, if, if we're honest enough with ourselves, sometimes we're acting stupid, it's because we're being sinful. Because mm-hmm. um, if we're thinking rightly, we're not going to be acting that way, having that attitude, speaking that way, treating others um, you know, and so if, if we're acting stupid in the sense that we're going against what we clearly know Scripture to teach, then we say, okay, self, self-examination here. If I'm acting this way, like something, there should be some alarm bell somewhere going off in our head saying, you know, this isn't right. And we need to like listen to that and like open the windows and listen even more and like turn the volume up and be like, oh, it's probably because of somewhere I compromised, somewhere I nurtured a sin where I shouldn't have. Um, another thought with this, though, thinking of verse 17, uh, you say I'm rich. And again, keeping their, their, their cultural mindset, like they were a very self-sufficient culture, we have to be very careful as Christians not to let the prevailing mindset of wherever mm-hmm. we live start to affect how we view ourselves, spiritually speaking. Like this is one of the reasons why it is so vital to stay in the Word um, and read it rightly so that we have the right perception of ourselves. You know, we talk about the importance of rightly interpreting the word. We want to interpret scripture. Well, when we get in the word and we're reading, guess what? Scripture interprets us. Mm-hmm. It does. That's why we read, we get convicted. The Spirit's working through the word to convict us and show us ourselves. And the only way we're going to have the right self perception is if we are constantly in the word. Um, you know, praying regularly, having regular fellowship, like God's going to give us an ability to see ourselves as we need to see ourselves. Um, and the, the, that's the only way that we can even begin to guard against like the, the cultural mindset. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like, I, you, you know me, I love our country. I'm intensely patriotic, but we have to be careful that we don't take the American dream as it is and import that into that's God's best and will for my life. Like, and, and if I'm not living the American dream, then somehow, you know, I've missed out on what God has for me. Like, but that's what we can do so easily. And there's other examples we could come up with. We need to make sure that the culture around us isn't shaping how we think. Just kind of jump off yeah, that point. So tur- turn to James chapter one, a few books to your left. <clears throat> James chapter one. Just want to look at one little bit here <clears throat> of the end of the chapter. So j- just real quick, James 1, 21, just read a few verses. 
This, this goes back to what Greg's saying about our approach to God's word versus culture. So James 1.21, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and listen to this, receive with meekness, so humility, the implanted word, the, the gospel and God's word, receive it meekly with humility, which is able to save your soul, souls. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So here's one way we deceive ourselves. We hear, but we don't do. Verse 23, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So you see here, the, the law is compared to looking in a mirror, the law of liberty, looking in a mirror. And when you look in the mirror, you're seeing what's wrong, right, with your face. If you've got food on the side of your face, you don't know about it, you go to the bathroom and you're at the restaurant, you look in the mirror, you're like, how long has that been there? I've been talking to people for half an hour. This has been on the side of my face, this ketchup here, and you, you wipe it off, right? The point of the mirror is to fix what's wrong, right? That's the whole reason we have mirrors, unless a few of you, it might be just admiration. And we won't ask for a show of hands, but for most of us, we're like, okay, how do I fix this mess, right? That's what you do. You look in the mirror, how do I fix this? So here's what God is saying. My law is like a mirror. We look intently at our face in the mirror of God's word, and God's word says all of his commands back to us, and we start measuring it with our own character, and we're going, yikes, I'm falling, I'm complaining, right? I'm not being thankful. I'm not praying without ceasing. I'm not loving as I should. I'm getting irritable. And you see that in God's word and you look at your own self and you go, oh, today I've, I've failed. I can see areas I've failed. Okay, now, if I just walk away and go, okay, I figured out what's wrong with me. I read the Bible. I figured out what's wrong. I even prayed a prayer and I walked away and nothing changed. I am gonna be close to becoming a Laodicean because now I think I've just done something because I read the Bible and I heard what was wrong with me and I maybe even heard a sermon that told me what I needed to do and I thought that's exactly what I need to do. And then I went out and did nothing about it. I, I forgot what I looked like the second I walked away from the mirror. And James says, you're going to become self-deceived if you do that. But instead, we stare into that law of liberty, not the culture. We stare at the law of liberty, and we find that our true freedom is in obeying God and becoming more like Jesus. And then we keep persevering in it until we become doers as well as hearers of the word. And again, it's only the word that can really change us and show us what's right mm -hmm. and what's wrong with our attitudes and our actions. Yeah, and I think you can see... Uh, plenty of times, uh, like it'd say the uh, parable of the sower, wealth, world, worry, the three W's is what chokes out the seed. And wealth here is, again, it is not wrong in itself. But how many times are we warned in Scripture that if we're affluent, and certainly we are, right, compared to the rest of the world, um, compared to the rest of um, the, the, the history uh, of man, we all have a lot. And so let's not let that make us apathetic. And I think most of the time, to some degree, it's easy for that to happen. Affluency and, and, and apathy can go together. I was reminded this afternoon, uh, we had about five, maybe seven African pastors that came to Columbia Bible College. Somebody forked out a lot of money for those guys to come to Bible College. And I don't know how they found them or how they got there or whatever. But I will tell you this, and I didn't get to know them nearly as well as I should have. I should have spent a lot of time with those guys. But they had a love for the Lord that was completely foreign to me because they depended on him for every single thing, every single day. And they were doing that with their family back in Africa when they were here. They would talk like that. And man, I hope my wife, you know, I'm praying for my wife because I don't know that she, what she's going to have, what she's got. And so they had had nothing, and their godliness 
because they depended on the Lord in a whole way that I, it was a whole different world spiritually to me. It was deeply convicting to be with those guys. And you could hear them preach, you could hear them sing, you could hear them, and they were on a whole nother level. And I thought, wow, what a blessing for those guys. Didn't have a lick materially, but boy, did they have a depth spiritually that was really, really good. And so how much of our, I was convicted by this and told Mark this, is like, even when we pray, aren't we usually praying for more? You know, like God would give us more, I don't know, more money or more stuff of some kind or another and say, I don't know that that really should be the, the most consuming part of our, our prayer life. It would be the depth spiritually um, that these guys were short on because they were relying on their riches. Which contrasts with the church in Smyrna, yep, where it right. says, Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Mm-hmm. They're the exact opposite of Laodicea. They're physically poor and they're in a horrible state. They're undergoing persecution for their faith. But guess what? Jesus says, you've got true riches. This other church has got monetary riches, but they've got nothing spiritually. They're poor and naked and blind spiritually. Um, I said, we can move on. Okay, yeah, let's move. There's a lot here, Yes, we got to keep going. Keep picking us up in verse 18. Yeah, verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Now, all three of these things in verse 18 um, relate to the three areas where Laodicea was really well known. Like the rich and the gold, Laodicea was a big banking city. Again, they had a lot of rich people there. When the earthquake hit, they were able to rebuild with their own money. Um, and it was like, if you want to you know, invest your money, if you want someone to watch your money, go to Laodicea because they're the best at this. And it's like, look, it, this, there's not like some kind of um, like spiritual gold that you know, is kind of like out. Like it's, he's, he's just speaking like, you have not found your riches in the, in the right place. I mean, what's the, the psalmist say? I, um, you know, your word is more precious to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces um, and stuff like that. So it's like, Jesus, like your whole, your whole understanding of what wealth is, is off. Um, and you need to get reoriented to what true wealth is. And that's a relationship with me. Um, the second thing he mentions, uh, white garments, so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Laodicea was well known for specific, uh, a specific wool that was unique to where they were. It was a black wool, which was, you know, it's not typical. Um, and so, you know, you had garments, you know, other fabrics and stuff like that where this wool was used, and it was very well sought, or sought after. Um, it was a very high-quality kind of thing. And, and Jesus is like, look, you're, you're looking, you're clothing yourself with all the stuff that people around you are clothing, and you're not concerned with clothing yourself with what really matters. Um, white garments here, I think, could refer to righteous deeds. Uh, it refers to that a lot in Revelation, other places. Um, at the end, um, it talks about the, the, the people of God clothed in white, and it talks about that being the righteous deeds of the saints. Um, so it's like, you know, what you, what you dress like on the outside really isn't that important. It's like, what are you wearing on the inside uh, that matters? And then um, he says this salve to anoint your eyes. They, they, were, they had an ophthalmology school. They, they were able with stuff they had around there to make this paste that everybody sought after. So like if you had an eye problem, go to Laodicea because you can get this salve to put on your eye and it's going to make your eyes better. And it's like you think 
like you've got this ISAB and all of this, and you know, look at what we can do for people's vision. And it's like you're all consumed with 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 physical sight and you're spiritually blind. Like you're not even seeing the most important things. And that's why he says, I counsel you, I advise you. I mean, Jesus is saying, look, this is what you need to do. Um, and I mean, we can check our own hearts on either of these three things. Like, you know, what, what, what do you see as true wealth right now in your own life? Just be honest. I can't answer that for you. I need to ask that. We need to ask that of ourselves. What, what do we see as true wealth? What do we see as kind of the status, like what we can wear? Um, what, what's going to identify me as, you know, and, and give me worth in that sense? And then the last one, you know, what, what do I think actually, you know, we, we think, oh, I can see, you know, and, you know, I've got insight, I've got knowledge. You know, what, where do we, what, what do we think about is most important in terms of what we know? What, what gives us discernment? What helps us understand what's going on around us? Is it the world that we're looking to for that? Or is it the Word of God? And again, that, that's something only you can do in the, in the, within your own heart and mind, but I encourage you to do that. Um, it's always good questions because look at verse 19. Here's the thing. It can be a little scary sometimes to think about these things, but look at what Jesus says. Those whom I love. Those whom I love, what do I do? I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. I reprove and discipline those I love. He, the, the very same words, hold your place here, turn quickly to the left to Hebrews chapter 12. Very familiar passage. Um, same words uh, used here that Jesus is using in, um, in Revelation chapter 3. Look at verse 3. Consider him. Actually, let's move on. Um, look at verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the word. Though the Lord, same word in Greek there as in Revelation 3, nor be weary when reproved by him. Same word for reprove. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. You've got the verb form of discipline and you've got like the noun form at work here and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Think also 2 Timothy 3.16 God talks about all scriptures breathed out by God, profitable for reproof. Um, same word, same word. Um, and so Jesus here, some have argued that the, the Laodicean church is completely apostate. There's no believers here. That, is, that just does not line up with the language that Jesus is using. Like we're saying, this is an address to people who make a profession of faith. And for those who actually are born again, actually regenerate, they will respond to this. But Jesus is not talking to this church as though they're completely apostate. They're right on the cusp. If they don't heed his warning, if they don't repent, if they don't become zealous, then it would be right to say, yes, you are apostate, but we can't make that designation because Jesus hasn't made it yet. Okay, and this is, that, that's just so important. How does God work in our lives? What, what's one of the evidences, Hebrews here and here, is that he loves us is that he disciplines us. Mm -hmm that he reproves us, he corrects us, he exposes our wrong. That's what the word reprove means, to expose sin, to, to try to bring conviction, like you, you point out something to either to you or, it's point, or you're pointing it out to someone you're reproving. Look, this is wrong and you should feel bad about it. That's reproof. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's trying to wake them up. And he's treating them as, as still, look, you're my church. The lampstand's still there. It's still burning. It might be dim, but it's not out completely yet. 
And so he's not treating them yet as fully apostate. That, that's why the thing about, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth, literally, that's the threat of what will happen if they mm -hmm. don't respond with repentance. If they mm -hmm. don't, Jesus says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. You're no longer going to be a church. But if you do respond positively, then I'm going to delight in you. I'm going to, I'm, I'm, it's, it's not, it's, it's like you're saying. Just a couple of things here. I know there's a few more things I want to, we want to address here before we're out of time and we're running low on time, but look at, look at, um, well, look at the screen real quick, just a cross-reference here. What does Jesus mean about buying from him? Because you could say that means earning your salvation. Well, of course, that's not what Jesus means. Good night. That's not what the Bible's teaching. But here's a good cross-reference for buying. What does Jesus mean? Come buy from me gold. Buy from me these things. Isaiah 55. Come, to, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. This is not the kind of buying you're thinking of. And then it says, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good, and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. So what is the buying here? It's free grace buying. It's Jesus saying, I've paid it all, just come and take it from me, and you will have all that you need. So look, look here, Revelation 3, verse 20. We've got to talk about this verse because this is just a very well-known verse. Uh, verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Okay, this is, I know it is normally used in sort of an evangelistic setting. This is not an evangelistic setting. Jesus is talking to a church. Okay, so here's what Jesus is saying. I, th I think this verse actually means something quite different than we often think of it. Here's what Jesus is saying. Your church has sent Jesus out the door, and you've shut the door on Jesus. So when your church is meeting, where is Jesus? He's outside. He's knocking at the door of your church. So imagine having a church service with no Jesus. Jesus is not present. He's not being worshiped. He's not being rightly adored. He's not being exalted. They're talking about and focused on all the wrong things. And where's Jesus? Jesus is outside. He's been kicked out of the church and he's standing there going, I'm knocking on the front door of the church. Hey guys, open the door. I will come in and I will fellowship with you and you can fellowship with me. I will give you all of myself to you and I will, I will, I will delight in you. I will, I, will be, I will be absolutely thrilled. I will delight in my church, but the door must be open to let Jesus in. And yes, we do believe that in the sovereignty of God, God works within us to make us willing to open the door. That's certainly true. But it doesn't change the analogy that Jesus has been basically removed from the church. And he's saying, let me back in. Let me eat with you. And I will have fellowship with you and you with me, which is kind of a preview of the messianic banquet, which is to come. Last thoughts on this. I know we're running low on time. Man, there's so much more we could say. Um, I think, look, look at verse 21. Man, there's more. Um, we might, I might post something on this um, later. I don't know. Um, verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So overcoming here um, is, you know, being zealous, repenting, you know, inviting Jesus back in, in that way. I mean, he's sovereign, like he ultimately doesn't need our permission in that way, but it's like realizing, you know, if, if we will be zealous, if we will repent when we sin um, and, and recognize that that Jesus might be not as close as we thought he was. What, what is the promise here? You'll sit down with me on, with him on his throne. And it's like, again, think of, of, of the Laodiceans. They think we don't need anything. That's literally what they say. We have need of nothing. And it's like, well, if you have need of nothing, you're, you've arrived. You can't get any better. And Jesus is like, I've got something far better. I'm going to have you sit down on my throne. You're going to sit with me and you're going to reign with me. 
Um, and so that's the promise. But again, it comes on the other side of repentance. It comes on the other side of being zealous for the works that we should be doing. You know, we, you don't want to be lukewarm. Well, God, what, what does that mean for me then to not be lukewarm in my life? You read the words, you find out what it looks like to walk with Jesus, and you're renewing that. Um, and, and the promise at the end of that is, I'll get to reign with Jesus. And that's a great promise. Would you close for us, Jerry? Yes. Father, we um, have been well warned tonight of um, what all of us are, are guilty of, I think, in uh, self-sufficiency um, and oftentimes not maybe understanding the depth uh, of our own sin, even as believers. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be quick uh, to repent, that we would often pray um, that you would reveal our faults, even our hidden faults, that uh, we would have good accountability and be that for each other um, in our church. I ask, Lord, that in our affluence, um, we would not become apathetic. And, Lord, we would ask that you would do um, this tremendous work in us, Lord, as we see the, the warning of being um, spit out um, and how nauseating the idea of a lukewarm um, nominal believer even is. And so, Father, we pray that we would um, guard our own hearts and check our own hearts and uh, grow um, from what we learned tonight. But we would also be quick to um, help um, others that we may know that might be in this situation currently. And uh, we commit this night to you and so grateful uh, for your word that does surgery on our hearts. In Jesus.